1: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: This podcast
3: may contain adult themes, strong language, and stupid health advice. Listener discretion is advised. (laughs)
4: Welcome back to In Bad Taste, where we cast a critical eye over health documentaries and the claims they make. I am your host, registered nutritionist, Pixie Turner. And I'm cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. Nikki
3: Stamp. Now, each month we are watching some god-awful health films and breaking down the science, or lack of science in this case, over four episodes. But because the month of June has five weeks, we are bringing you an extra special bonus
4: episode. How lucky are you? And how lucky are we? Obviously, this is very exciting. We are very lucky because, first of all, who doesn't want more bud coffee? Actually, I don't want more butt coffee. (laughs) No, please. I'm sorry. (laughs) Please, no more bud stuff. Uh, But more importantly, in these bonus episodes, we're going to be calling for reinforcements and talking to other people. What? Who are experts in their field, so you can have a little break from us and hear from some outstanding guests. We are also going to hear from you all, because in addition to our wonderful guest this week, who we will get to in just a moment, we are also going to be hearing your stories about Gerson therapy and natural therapy for cancer.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm actually really looking forward to this because to get started with our guest for this episode is such a tremendous human. Dr. Ranjana Srivastava has an unbelievably impressive CV. So here are some important points. She's a medical oncologist from Melbourne, Australia, an award-winning author and regular columnist for The Guardian, which actually is how I first found her because her writing is just so beautiful. She is also a Fulbright awardee, an outstanding educator, and just the nicest person. And I spoke to her about cancer, chemotherapy, and gerson. So let's take a listen. I guess we'll start off with a, a really um, a really simple one. Can you just tell our audience what exactly an oncologist does?
2: Yeah, sure, Nikki. So, an oncologist is a specialist physician who deals with malignant diseases, so cancer, and especially in the prescription of chemotherapy. So, uh, that that's sort of a, a narrow definition. So, people often get confused whether oncologists operate. Uh, But that's the job of a surgeon or a surgical oncologist. So typically, an oncologist would see a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer or who has suspected cancer and needs uh, some form of cancer treatment, which may be chemotherapy or immunotherapy or so on and so forth. And we look after people uh, with a wide range of diseases and also a wide range of ages.
3: I guess um you know I, my uh, my dealings with cancer is, as you say is, is, a, is a cancer surgeon I look after lung cancer um but one of the things I find really fascinating about oncology is you know even since I was in medical school even through my my surgical training my career is that oncology is changing so rapidly um you know I'm always amazed at the, the novel treatments that are coming out and really potentially really changing the face of of cancer treatment and uh, you know it's, I'm excited by I think it's really really interesting it must be really um really fascinating for you too
2: well you certainly got that right so you know a a common occurrence in my house is I'll be reading journals very intently and my kids will say oh my god that looks so dense and so boring How can you bear to read this? And I try to say to them, I'm reading this because tomorrow there will be someone in clinic who will ask me about this. That's how rapidly changing oncology and cancer medicine has become. You know, there are often journal articles that are married with a big newspaper article about some blockbuster treatment. And lo and behold, the patient cuts out Mm. um, a a newspaper clipping and brings it in and says, can I have this treatment? So, So it really is something to uh, to keep up with and it is it's exciting and it's uh, it's so encouraging for so many patients
3: yeah agree wholeheartedly so I guess uh, cancer you know everyone knows someone who has had cancer everyone you know a lot of people have experienced cancer personally what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions people have around cancer whether it be causes or treatments you know what are the things that you see day in and day out
2: yeah, so I think in terms of the causes of cancer, um, I see, oh, not too often, but occasionally people coming in with sort of theories about why cancer happened and, and whether they relate it to something they have done, somewhere they have lived and so on. I think many people are now becoming familiar with the most common causes of cancer, including smoking, alcohol, uh, asbestos exposure in the past, etc. And also, I think people are realizing that many cancers do happen out of the blue. I guess the misconceptions that I really struggle with and that are devastating and so sorrowful to watch are more when someone is diagnosed with cancer and the, and the treatment options. And there, it is very common for me to run up against just terrible myths and misconceptions.
3: Mm, That's very hard. So do you see many people who use complementary and alternative therapy for cancer?
2: The literature suggests that up to 80% of patients use some form of complementary medicine. I assume that everybody is using something or the other and I take it as my job to find out respectfully what it is that they're doing and hope that it is not harmful and doesn't clash with the treatment mm. that I am prescribing. But I think you would be naive to, uh, to think that people don't look into all the myths and misconceptions and often use them
3: yeah absolutely and I think you raise a really important point there you know we we, we really need to know <laughs> we, we, we you know completely non-judgmental we actually need to know as doctors because it, it changes what we um might change what we do it might change the effectiveness of, of the treatments that we're going to give someone I know for me you know some of some herbal medications make patients bleed more often which coming for surgery is obviously very problematic um <laughs> but we really we really do need to know and I uh, you know I'd like to see people feel a bit more comfortable telling us, you know, it's, it's their body. They can make those choices. But at the very least, we just need to know what's, what's actually going on.
2: And I think just extending that, Nikki, what you said uh, about, you know, some, some drugs making your patients bleed. So similarly, we have, uh, you know, we know that excess doses of even benign sounding vitamins can actually be detrimental to people's health. Mm. And then other drugs and other medicines, uh, alternative therapies can actually counter the impact of chemotherapy or make side effects worse. So those are the reasons. I think people want to know why they have to share that information with us. And and that's why I, I tell them.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's a good thing—a good thing to do. I know there was the the lung cancer trial. I was say so lung cancer is my my cancer area. That you know there was the trial where they looked at giving beta carotene to smokers to see if that would you know as an antioxidant whether it would reduce the risk of lung cancer actually made it worse. Um, you know, I guess those are the stories that people don't hear about. They they see that the, as you say even vitamins, which as you say they sound so benign, like you can get them at Woolworths or Coles or whatever supermarket you have wherever you are. In the world, it, it just seems kind of counterintuitive that they would um, they would actually cause significant harm. So so this one um, Pixie and I have been um, unfortunately delving into to Gerson therapy um, and actually this is how I first um, found your writing and found you was um, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with with Bell Gibson. Um, but you, and uh, Jess Ainsclough, and you had written um, some really really amazing articles for the Guardian um, about these 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 poor women. Um, so I guess wanted to to see what what you see in your role. Um, you know, do do you see patients who have pursued something like Gerson or Gerson therapy? You know, and how, how do they you know how do those conversations uh, how do they go?
2: Unfortunately, I think especially with the widespread use of uh, social media and other forms of advertising, it would be very common for me to have discussions with patients. And I will say they're of all ages. They're not just young. They're not just socially social media connected because, as you say, cancer touches everyone and everybody has a piece of advice, unfortunately, for the cancer patient. So I will often encounter patients, first of all, on very restrictive diets. And it is a myth that I am constantly trying to shake. And so a common example would be people almost sort of conversationally say to me that it's taken for granted that uh, omitting a certain uh, food group is going to be helpful slash it may cure their cancer. And that that changes with every patient, so some will say that about fats or proteins or carbs or sugar, uh, and unfortunately, I you know I try to emphasize that I have never seen um, a patient who has been made well by the strictest of elimination diets, but I do see the opposite where people are malnourished, and we know that in up to you know a significant proportion of cancer deaths actually happen not. Directly from the cancer, but from malnourishment and 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 that's tragic, and so I will see people who are dying because they have they don't have adequate nutrition now, I will qualify that by saying that many cancers are what we call catabolic in that you are eating as much as you can, you're eating well, but the body requires so much energy, and the cancer is taking up so much energy that you still become malnourished and and thin, etc. And that's separate. That's the impact of the cancer. But what's really tragic to see is when people have deliberately put themselves on a diet that doesn't have enough calories, and they're malnourished
3: yeah yeah i mean i think that's 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 a really important point i mean that's something that we're taught really early on in 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 our training you know whatever healthcare professional you are that you know the the nature of cancer is that it can can just destroy your 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 nutritional status because it's requiring so much energy so it just takes up all of your energy stores fat muscle etc and you know that was one of the really early signs that you're supposed to, you're taught is you know to look out for with cancer something called cachexia you know where people as you say they're so thin and and wasted um it just seems it seems uh just so counterintuitive to us i suppose that anyone would want to cut any kind of um you know calories or um you know macronutrients any kind of nutrition from their diet as it's just i'd never really um i never really knew actually that cancer deaths um can a significant amount happen from malnourishment so i think that's even an even more important reason why we need people to um um, to to be mindful of what they're eating and and rather than get their advice from a documentary or social media or their auntie or whatever it's actually you know to speak to a dietitian and you know we have we have uh, teams of, of dietitians and so on and so forth with associated with most cancer services I, I think nowadays um, and that's where it'd be much better that people got their advice from there do you do you see people um, do you see people who turn up um, you know with you know they perhaps eschewed you know conventional treatment and they come with um they come with you quite late stage disease and uh, know, they've tried something else and now they want they want medical intervention
2: yeah look I I wish I could say to you that with all our education that doesn't happen but unfortunately it does and I think it speaks to the great temptation of things that sound quote-unquote natural. And whether they're vitamin infusions, which are dangerous sometimes, or, or you know, saline infusions, or just sticking to juices and not having solid foods. I mean, I, I almost feel as if, you know, I shouldn't even be mentioning them just in case someone thinks they're helpful, but I'm mentioning them because I see the devastating impact of doing something extreme like that. And so, yes, every year I will have a handful of patients who have declined, uh, avoided conventional therapies and gone to something alternative only to come back at a very late stage. I I would like to elaborate on that a little bit and I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic with with people who, because I think that when somebody has a conversation about chemotherapy, if it is a good conversation, then it must undoubtedly include many facts and figures also about the toxicities of treatment and there are many so i think the way to get people to have conventional treatment is not to skim over those details but to have detailed and considered conversations about what the toxicities are how we are going to do shared decision making here and how we are going to support them so with a dietitian for example or with social work or with a close review of their side effects but I think when that doesn't happen, people just take take home very, um, sometimes they're antiquated views of chemotherapy too. Chemotherapy is not one thing and it's changed and cancer treatment has changed. Yes. So my heart goes out to people who will say, uh, I saw my mother have cancer treatment 40 years ago and I'm never going to go through that again. Probably neither would I 40 years ago, but treatments have changed. So I think firstly... As a patient, as, as somebody who might be listening to this thinking, well, what are my rights and what are, what are the doctor's responsibilities? I think your rights are to have a good, in-depth conversation about what's right for you. Not what's right for the world, but for you.
3: I agree. I think that, that's such an important point.
2: Um, people do need to be upfront mentioning, about, mentioning the other things they're thinking. And there are two reasons why I think patients aren't. The first one is people are very afraid of being ridiculed by the medical profession, that if it's not medical, if it is not science-based, then it doesn't matter. And we know increasingly and humblingly that that's not true, and that there are many adjunct measures such as mindfulness, for example, or yoga, or, you know, many people find, you know other things like that useful. So to outright say, if it is not in our medical textbooks, we are not buying it, it's just unhelpful. And this is why I think a lot of patients feel that they don't even want to talk to us about those things. So that needs to change. And then hopefully that's how we come to a shared understanding and, and some kind of yeah. rapport that a patient feels that they can trust you, that you will not be ridiculed if they say, you know, what do you think about these vitamin infusions? And I have patients who ask me these questions mm-hmm. and and I kind of thank them for for bringing them up with me. And then we have a discussion about that I haven't seen it work. And interestingly, I mean, and you will see this, there's a fraction of people who are convinced that they're right and they're going to do this no matter what. But it's actually surprising how many people will say, actually, I was thinking the same, doctor, but you know, my neighbor felt that this was a good thing or my, you know, my cousin has been pressing me to have this treatment, but I'm going to go with what you think
3: yeah yeah I, I i really i really think that is a really important point that you bring up because you know medicine has this really paternalistic um background you know that's we really started in in the time when you know patients would defer to us for you know anything whatever you say doctor um and i think that that kind of persists and i i think that some of that as a myth and I think some of that is actual behaviour from colleagues that there is still that really paternalistic nature. But I think if, yeah, as I say, um, as you said, sorry, that if, if people are listening, we want to know and we, we won't judge you. We might not agree with you but it's your body. <laughs> you get to make the final choice. Um all we can do is give you the information, support you in your decision, be there for you, um and and let you make the decision about what is best or, or isn't best for for your body um and your your life and and I think um I think the more that people understand that the more it will make conversations like this much easier. And in reality, the people who deserve, you know, for want of a better word, blame around um, these kinds of, you know, uh, sometimes harmful or or expensive treatments aren't the people who are using them, that they're vulnerable and scared and, all these other things that you know I think that the problem with these is actually people who are knowingly or ignorantly pushing them um, you know on a vulnerable population so if, if you were to to i suppose um, state something that perhaps needs to be done better to regulate false cancer or any false health claims in general, what do you think what do you think that would be? what would that look like?
2: Yeah, look, it's very tempting to think that uh... Regulation will solve all problems, and that if only false peddlers were all effectively regulated, we wouldn't have this issue. But I'm a little bit pessimistic about that because just in in my short career, I am I, I sometimes feel that the marketing of ineffective, alternative, and extreme therapies seem to be as frequent as new drugs for cancer no sooner <laughs> have you heard of one thing than there's something else and then there's something else mm-hmm. and it's it's actually quite daunting so my great hope is that things will change with health literacy yes and that's really the only way to well one one big way may not be the only way to change the culture where A, as we have alluded to before, doctors and patients have better conversations without being dismissive and judgmental. And B, through programs like this and other programs, there is widespread health literacy so that the next cancer patient who is being peddled something or, you know, a well-intentioned relative or friend pushes something onto them, they at least have the insight to say, hang on. I'm just going to discuss this with my doctor or with a trusted health professional because I'm not quite sure, and that would be a really good start.
3: Yeah, I, I, I share I, I share your pessimism and I share your optimism as well with with health literacy because you're a, you, you, can, you literally cannot put out every fire that jumps up. You know, you can't. You, you, you it's just not possible. And I think for me, the other thing about regulation that makes me uncomfortable is that it potentially strengthens. People's um, resolve. Sometimes it you know adds to the to the narrative that we're um, I don't know we're uh, out to push drugs or you know we're not we're not uh, we're not open minded enough. So I would agree wholeheartedly. Well, um, Ranjana thank you for your time. Uh, This has been such a a really lovely conversation, and I hope if people listen to this, um, really get some faith in in medicine because you you have just such a beautiful manner of. (laughs) talking about these complex issues and for people who are listening please 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 um, get uh, get in touch with Ranjana you can follow her on Twitter you can read her books and her writing for The Guardian it is Outstanding, um, and I hope that for people who read that, perhaps have some of their fears allayed around medicine, around healthcare, and around cancer treatment. Um, and and thank you, thank you so much for giving your time to us to have a little chat about this really, really important issue. Thank you.
0: You're welcome, and good luck to our listeners. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
4: that was a fantastic interview i really enjoyed listening to that and i was really sad that i couldn't be part of it but you know (laughs) time time differences are fun (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, so good to chat to her. And, you know, she's so um, honest um, and measured and educated. Um, and like I said, I first came across um, Ranjana when I was uh, reading an article she wrote about Belle Gibson in The Guardian. And it just struck me as being quite like there was no ambiguity that she was not at all endorsing this treatment that she was um, dead set against it it needs to be um, looked at but at the same time she showed so much compassion um, for these people for these people who who go through it for her patients who sometimes want to pursue it um, and I was just I just was really really impressed by her approach but I think she raised a couple of important points which I think we, we may have touched on briefly um, but you know the the idea of dieting in um in cancer patients when we know that malnutrition is such such a big part of how healthy they can be to get their treatment, to do well throughout their treatment, you know, I thought that was a really interesting point that is never really communicated when people talk about these really restrictive eating patterns um, during cancer treatment.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm obviously no expert in this area. But from what I've heard and read specialist dietitians in this area speak about and write about is that they all say the most important thing if you're if you have cancer, if you're undergoing chemotherapy and other treatments like that, the most important thing is to just eat enough food, eat anything you can that tastes reasonably okay to you that you actually enjoy eating because your taste buds can change quite a bit. And obviously with side effects like nausea, that eating in general can be quite challenging and actually focusing on eating enough food and just eating really any food that tastes good to you. That is so much more important than making sure that you're getting you know, every single different nutrient and a huge variety of foods. At that point, that is just not as important as simply getting enough food, full stop. Which, to be fair, that's kind of a general rule. I would say, you know, enough food should be the absolute baseline, <laughs> and then diversity kind of goes on top of that, surely. <laughs> Absolutely, I, yeah. Like, let's just
3: keep things simple. Um, I know that's a crazy idea, but um, let's just try that and see how it works. You know, after we I spoke to spoke to and I actually I found a study um, was a meta analysis about diet in in radiotherapy. And you know, one of the things they said is probably a very important predictor of how people manage their treatment is um, is their nutritional status. So. You know why are we you know why are we permitting this kind of nonsense to to permeate you know the lives of people who 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 really do not need this in any way, shape, or form yeah,
4: and I feel this is important to point out because while these kind of documentaries tend to focus on people who do things like gerson therapy instead of chemo what we also see quite a lot of people doing both or doing one than the other. So in their interaction and, and speaking about their interaction is also in, an important part of the conversation because there are so many reasons why someone might feel that they want to choose some kind of alternative or complementary therapy alongside chemotherapy. And in some cases, I really think it is important to encourage this. Mm-hmm. Especially when there's a strong cultural component to it. For example, when it brings someone back to their culture and they feel like that this is something that is an important part of their identity. As long as it's done safely alongside things like chemo, that can be so important and can actually really help someone psychologically in their recovery mm-hmm. as well. And that isn't something that we should be discouraging, I think, because it actually does improve outcomes. I agree. I
3: mean, look, you know, I think I, I, I ask, my patients about their complementary therapies and their vitamins. And I, I ask for that for a very specific reason because I know that a lot of things that people take commonly that they think are really benign do interact with the medicines that I give them, do make uh, things more difficult in surgery. Um, so I, I definitely ask about it um, and... I know, though, that you know people might feel a bit uncomfortable um, divulging that information because they think I'm going to judge them or I'm going to tell them not to do it. And look, there are times when I'm going to say, yeah, please don't do it or at least please don't do it for this period of time. And then afterwards, you know, go nuts, do whatever you want. That's absolutely fine. But, you know, I think we need to to have this open dialogue to say that, you know, as healthcare professionals, we want to support your need because it is a need for autonomy for control over your body for control over your treatment for access to to alternative therapies that are going to make you feel better because you know as we've just said they do make you feel better you know they might make you you know tolerate these treatments a bit better but we just we just need to know about it and and we will support you We'll support you 100%. Um, We'll give you the information. We might not always agree, but we'll give you that information. And at the end of the day, it is your body. It is your choice. But I think one thing that probably, you know, came across in, in that chat with Ranjana and that we've talked about, that's all very well and good. But what I think that we cannot abide and I think probably why we take such issue with this film, this therapy and I know people can't see it but I'm doing air quotes because it's not a real therapy um is that these people I think some of the time knowingly uh prey on vulnerable people um they know that they're they're desperate they will get their money they will get their you know kudos or whatever it is that they're after um that that crosses a line for me that's not supporting someone's autonomy that's taking advantage of their vulnerability
4: Totally agree. And on that note of choice, what we've also seen quite a bit, and also in the stories that we are are planning on sharing today as well, is that often actually it's not the individual who chooses to have alternative therapies alongside. It's actually sometimes forced upon them by family members who obviously in that situation feel very desperate, who feel they want some sense of control over what's happening. And so they for lack of a better term, force these therapies onto the individual with cancer. And while that makes the person feel better that they're doing something that's in their control, it doesn't actually help the individual. It can also sometimes harm them as well, um, which is oh, which is just another side of this equation as well, that it's not always someone's choice. Sometimes it is forced upon people as well. And that very much links to, I think, the stories that we are keen to share and I think these stories are just really important because it's all very well talking about a documentary. These are real people who have reached out to us over social media and via email as well. This isn't just something that happens on Netflix. These are real people and this this happens on a regular basis to real human beings whose lives are impacted significantly.
3: Yeah, this is real love. And I I guess so Pixie and I have both got stories that we've got, you know, independent of one another. But anyway, I think you should start. You should start with yours.
4: Okay. My mum was in serious denial when my grandpa's cancer came back, and he was too thin and weak for another round of chemo. He was put in a hospice, and given the news that it would likely be within a month or two, he made it around 1.5 months. While the rest of us were saying goodbye, my mum was mad at us for giving him his pain meds. What she said was, those are strong drugs, you're killing him. And she insisted that we should put him on a juice cleanse and brewed him a mushroom tea daily. It took probably a year for her to let go of that anger that she put onto the rest of us for just letting him die, her quotes. And that's just, oh, but I I can totally, I can totally understand why this would happen. But it's also just really shows how this anger, when it's so misplaced, can just really do such harm to family, to a family that are already in a vulnerable place because someone's just died. Um,
3: and so, so it's
4: so sad. I, I just, you know, I really feel for that that family
3: because not only have they gone through this illness, but they've also had to go through, you know, the complete upheaval of their family. I mean, it's just, it's really shit. <laughs> right. Your turn. Yeah, I've got one that made me really sad um, now. Uh, so just also we should say that we got full permission from these people to share these stories. Um, well, this one made me cry. So my father left us six years ago. He was diagnosed with cancer that had metastasized to all of his bones and given a few months to live. He did Gerson therapy and lived in pain for 12 months in extreme pain. We were told after he left by his counselor that he wished he hadn't done it because of what he went through. Oh, God. I do believe, though, it was more about having some sort of control over the situation, and for that he is my hero. Um, I hope people never judge anyone for choosing their own healing path.
4: That is really heartbreaking. Yeah, that is really heartbreaking to only find out afterwards. Or- I think it raises
3: it raises an important point for me as well, though. Like, you know, they, you know, they're not upset with him. They're not, you know, it, it, it happened, it was, you know, it's really sad. But, you know, I think, you know, this person said, you know, I hope people never judge anyone. And I think that's a really important point. You know, one of the things I worked out pretty early on in medicine is that we look at you know and you don't necessarily have to be in healthcare to do this but we look at the decisions other people make in their lives and we're like Ugh, I would never do that or in this situation I would do this you don't know what you're going to do until you're in that situation um, which I think again strengthens this argument that we need to make sure that we give people the best chance to make the best decisions um, the safest decisions for them in that situation um, this was a this was a comment that was left for us both. Um, I completely understand why Jess pursued this option. The surgery she faced was physically maiming and I don't think many people could bear to face it. It was heartbreaking to see a mum get diagnosed with breast cancer and a shoe medicine, um, which is now one of the most treatable cancers there is, especially in older women like Jess's mum, only to pursue ghosts and stuff and to die within 18 months of diagnosis. And thank you both for the podcast. It's important and necessary such an important point and it's good that people don't think we're assholes
4: (laughs) yeah that that's a relief (laughs) that is a bit of a relief i mean i mean yeah i mean we're not exactly making huge numbers of friends by shitting over all these documentaries that suit people's very entrenched (laughs) ideologies but hey we're doing it anyway it's all right our dance cards fall anyway
2: we are doing it anyway
4: (laughs) oh wow
3: well, I have to be honest, I am I am beyond happy to see the end of the Gerson miracle because I think we said this like multiple times during the previous episodes that it was really hard. It was really hard. Like at least, you know, we laughed at the game changes, we're like, You guys are silly. <laughs> But, you know, I, I am very pleased to see the back of this. This was just really heavy and a lot, a lot, a lot to take in.
4: Yeah, it was a lot, which is why next week we're going for something much lighter. We're going back to diabetes and heart disease. Oh, what a relief.
3: <laughs> yes, we have chosen our next victim um, which is going to be a popular sugar documentary? Yes, we are finally taking on sugar. Uh, we are going to be watching Fed Up. Oh yes, yes. I'm so excited. i
4: You know what I'm excited about with this one is that a lot of so many of these documentaries use really stigmatizing images of fat people Mm. and have this huge narrative of calling a non-contagious condition or a non-contagious state of being an epidemic. And I am very, very passionate about this subject because of the area that I work in, but also because I'm a just decent fucking human being who treats other people with respect no matter what (laughs) they look like. And so one thing I am really excited (laughs) about (laughs) is firstly to shit all over sugar addiction because fuck that sugar is not cocaine spoiler alert secondly i am very excited to really get angry about all the fat phobia and all these messages about epidemics and just really smash that with a fuck ton of references and passion so i'm very excited about this one actually yeah we're gonna have a lot to say We're going
3: to have a lot to say. Um, Yeah, I think it's going to be a good one um, and significantly more lighthearted than talking about this what's been a really, really gloomy topic. Um, So yeah, can't wait. Please, please don't forget to tune in and please don't forget to leave us a five-star rating because that's how people will find our podcast. And of course, tell your mates. Now, if you have questions or comments, you can get in contact with us on email in bad taste podcast at gmail.com. And I want to say thank you guys so much for your feedback, your comments, your questions and for your reviews. We knew that this chunk of episodes was going to be serious um, and sad and you have absolutely absolutely loved them and supported them so thank you so much um, please make sure you are subscribed and of course come and see us on our socials pixie is at pixie nutrition and i am at dr nikki stamp and we will leave you references and relevant links including where to find Ranjana, in the show notes below and we can't wait to see you next week yes we
4: will see you then goodbye and thank you and goodbye to gerson therapy Woo-hoo. Bye. honestly i'm so fucking happy we don't have to watch that again because fuck me it's